0: Section five of War the Creator by Gillette Burgess This LibriVox recording is in the public domain War The Creator Part thirteen The shells began to fall thicker and faster. The Germans were indubitably near at hand. But where the devil was the regiment? There was no knowing, except that it was pretty sure to be getting away from those harrying shells chilled, the boys ran through the dripping woods till they came to a clearing. Here, looking down, they saw the Germans fording the Meuse, But not without trouble. A French battery had got their range and was playing red havoc with them, slinging shell after shell of well-aimed shrapnel. By dozens they melted away under the fire, and the water was full of bobbing corpses drifting downstream. "'We just burst out laughing,' said Georges we couldn't help it, not that it was so funny to see men killed like that by the hundreds, but, after all we had gone through, after the ghastly way we had been butchered at Bertrix, it really did me good to see those boches suffering themselves at last. He didn't laugh long. With the German reckless sacrifice of life, column after column was thrown into the river, until more and more got across. It was time for the boys to be moving now, and they set out toward the westward, tramping all day, eating nothing but the raw beets they dug up in the fields, and finally found the 17th Corps at Rocourt. They were just in time to join their regiment, as it was ordered forward seven more miles for a new engagement. There, protected by the French batteries, they bivouacked. Glad enough was Georges of a chance to sleep no fear of the coming battle could keep him awake by this time. At dawn, while the vigilant searchlights were still playing across the opposite hillside, the French guns started firing, and without breakfast Georges' battalion was ordered forward. In half an hour the enemy was discovered half a mile away. In the valley between opposite hills the shells were screeching now over their heads, from the French seventy-fives the sound of the whizzing projectiles came high and dry like buzz saws they burst with the awful battering of nearby thunder the german marmites snorted through the air and exploded with a deeper more terrible crash the regiment halted and was deployed in four ranks the first two lying on the ground the third and fourth kneeling the men were mostly quite cool but georges confessed that he himself had hard work controlling his nerves while he waited for that attack in ten minutes the enemy appeared from behind rising ground and came on a long grey-black line of thousands and thousands of men a thick line swarming multitudinous nearer and nearer load coolly commanded the captains five hundred metres ready now fire the salvo rang out the heavy rows of Germans seemed to hesitate for a moment but no they were only stopping to fire there came a sudden whistling in the air all about, and the bullets flew, for a terribly long minute, as Georges described it. Then the enemy came on again, and kept on coming, in a broad thick wave, company after company, and only a battalion of four companies to resist them. Georges fired without aiming. What was the use of aiming at that horde of men? The boys jumped to their feet, fired again and again, and then, as their comrades dropped about them everywhere, they began to retreat, some picking up the wounded as they went. At first they withdrew in order, turning back to fire another volley, but when the Germans fixed their bayonets and came at them on the double-quick, the French broke, and ran for it helter-skelter, this way and that, in a second rout, even worse than the first. Georges ran with the rest and the shrapnel followed him killing men on either hand in front behind then over the rise came the uhlans yelling galloping in to cut them up looking back georges saw the cavalry sabering and lancing and he ran like a deer for his life ran up the hillside ran into the woods he ran for at least a mile with the thunder of the cannon still in his ears when finally he stopped to take a breath it was only a fragment of his company that he found near him, some ten or eleven men, among them a sergeant. Where were the others? Nobody knew. The regiment, demoralized, had split up into numberless terrified detachments, and wandered all over the countryside. Such was the inglorious battle of Rocourt. Of the week following, Georges could give no consecutive account he remembers only that he and the others tramped and tramped for miles, inquiring of peasants, gendarmes, of the stragglers, everyone, everywhere, the whereabouts of the 20th regiment. They climbed over hills, they rested in little deserted villages, where every house was gutted of furniture, doors open, rooms littered, and here and there a starved cat or two, lean and wild. The roads were alive with refugees, French and Belgian, all plodding mournfully toward the south, dreary processions of wagons and cattle, and weeping women, children, and stony-eyed, sulky men. No, nobody had seen the Twentieth Regiment. They tramped from Villers to Malmy, and, apparently Georges isn't quite sure where they did go, from Malmy to Meir, At Le Vivier, or perhaps it was Mon Dieu, they found an infantry regiment, but it was not their own. The twentieth should be down Vuzier way, said the officers, so they trudged on. More and more stray men had joined Georges' party. Few of them had knapsacks, some didn't even have guns. Hats of all kinds, costumes, promiscuous, but all dishevelled. They were, by this time, a villainously whiskered lot, ragged, dirty, weary, famished, sullen, desperate, without discipline, without leaders. Occasionally, in some ransacked village, they found stale bread or vegetables that they cooked in the woods. Whatever else they ate was begged from the few frightened peasants that still remained on their farms. There was one village, however, that Georges did remember, and that was Les Halleux. There he slept in an actual bed. How Les alleux happened to be abandoned, with all its houses undisturbed, with the clocks still going and the furniture in place, even the beds made up, Georges doesn't know. Some sudden alarm had evidently caused the inhabitants to fly at a moment's notice. What mainly interested him was that they had left their barnyards full of poultry. Les Allieux was almost gay. There were some hundred soldiers collected there, now, all tattered des millions, stragglers from the rout, making the most of their unexpected good luck. There was almost everything to eat except bread. Georges fairly gorged himself on hot roast chicken and cheese, made merry with the rabble of soldiery, sang, smoked, and then slept for twelve solid hours, with his boots off on a delectable feather-bed and sheets. And, for once, without the din of cannon in his ears. This, however, was hardly the way to save his country. Georges' conscience and the booming of German guns awoke him to his duty next morning. The mob scattered, fleeing south in a hurry. Georges' party, he found when they started, had grown smaller. I don't know whether or not to mention this detail, he told me, but at least it will show that I wasn't quite so bad as the rest but I think some of the boys found citizens' clothes in the houses there at Les Allures, and got away in them. At any rate, they didn't come along with us. His odyssey ended at a village called Pauvre, on the high road between Rathel and Vouziers. Here they found what was left of the 20th regiment, and Georges was welcomed like one from the dead. All received new rifles and accoutrements, and the regiment was reorganised of its three battalions there remained hardly enough to form two, a third was made up of waifs and strays from other divisions. Part fourteen. The Twentieth Regiment now contained a sad and sorry lot of men, weary, discouraged, shamefaced, and sullen at their double defeat. But when they heard that the army was to retreat still further, and abandon all this rich, flourishing northern country to the invaders without a blow, why, it was incredible! What was the matter? Where were their reinforcements? Only fifteen days ago they had been marching enthusiastically up through the lovely forest of Argonne, now they were going to retreat into Champagne. But they were too busy with preparations to spend much time sulking. The officers declared that they would lead their men to victory yet so the retreat commenced to the booming accompaniment of the threatening German artillery. Little did George know of cool old General Joffre and his desperate plans. Little did he imagine that the endless falling back, falling back, falling back, falling back through Champagne, was to go down into history as a masterpiece of Fabian strategy. All he understood of that campaign was, day after day of retreating along the hard white roads, then into the fields and digging trenches. Night after night, standing ready in those clay, shoulder-deep holes, waiting for an attack, while the first line of the rear-guard fought constantly with the enemy. So they did their best to hold back the flood of invaders, so they struggled with the booming cannon ever following them. It was hard, sour work, the men, exhausted with the digging and the marching and the watching, with their few hours' sleep constantly interrupted by alarms, trudged hopelessly southward, too glum to talk. Constantly the officers encouraged them. "'Just to that hill there, men! Come on!' But it took more than their optimism to restore the courage of the troops. Man after man stopped, absolutely incapable of going further, and slumped down by the side of the road, only to be forced on, kicked on again by the corps of gendarmes which followed the march. If the column halted for a minute, half the men fell instantly asleep as they stood. The minute the trenches were dug they had to prepare to receive the enemy. Mighty little food these days, and no fresh meat. Even water was scarce, as the men were forbidden to drink of springs till they had been inspected. George's regiment was, for the most part of the retreat, held in the second line of the rear-guard, and he was, therefore, in but one actual engagement. In the general campaign it was called, probably, only a sharp skirmish. But to George it was one of those crises when life says come, move up a notch. I was on sentry duty at the end of the trench where the company was sleeping, said George. On Tuesday, the 2nd of September, it was near Sawon. I knew everyone's life depended on me, and it was a terrible strain. You know the enemy was always right on our heels, night and day. Monsieur, I was just all eyes, searching everywhere through the dark. It must have been about two in the morning when I thought I saw something moving on the opposite hillside. At first I wasn't quite sure. I had to pull my eyes away deliberately, and rest them on something else, you know how your eyes get when you stare too hard and too long. But then, when I looked again quickly, I was sure. Yes, the Boches were coming. It was horrible. I saw them creeping from one bush to another like snakes. I kicked the sergeant who was snoring at my feet, and pointed. Instantly all our men were quietly awakened my lieutenant told me to stay where I was and pretend not to see anything… but to choose my man and be ready to fire. Yes, monsieur, it was a ticklish job… I felt rather queer, I confess. I knew that I would be the very first one to be shot at. That was about the longest fifteen minutes I ever spent. Well, we let them crawl up… crawl up… to within a hundred meters, and then, just as they all jumped to their feet the lieutenant shouted, FIRE AT WILL! I was ready for the foremost man, and I let him have it right through the forehead. Here is his helmet, monsieur. See that hole? In the hospital at Toulouse, while I listened to his story, he held up a black helmet, trimmed with brass, with a spiked top. It had never left him since that day. Yes, I saw that hole, the hole where he had killed his man but when I saw him look at that German helmet, there was an expression on his face that baffled me. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that Coco wasn't there. Coco, with the lead-pencil. No, this was a new person now on that bed in front of me. It was Georges Cucurou, and he would never be a boy again. Part fifteen. During that terrible retreat, Georges, who had been part of a working fighting-machine, tried to his utmost in mind and body. He had been hammered, hammered into shape. Hunger and fatigue had hardened him. Every day his nerves had been getting more tough and strong. If his duty consisted of retreating, digging, sleeping three or four hours a day, going without meat and often without water or wine, he could do it on a postcard scrawled in haste from somewhere no postmark no date no indication of any locality being permitted he wrote to his aunt dear aunt if we keep on retreating like this we may perhaps get to paris i should be very glad to see you of course but i hope not there must soon be an end of all this digging and digging and victory will be ours i am afraid you won't recognise your georges indeed she wouldn't have recognised him but not only because for weeks he had the dirt caked in his hands and hair and ears and his uniform hung on him in rags but partly too because already in his face there was beginning to show something more unlike the old coco we had known than all that change in his outward self could make him he had learned patience perseverance caution confidence in his officers, and faith in the ultimate victory. He was uplifted by that great wave of high idealism that was transforming France. Why that steady retreat further and further south? Georges and Georges's company, now that they were tempered by experience, now that they were raging to attack, couldn't understand. But still they retreated and retreated. Back to Sweeper they came. It was a queer entrance that regiment made into Suippe. On the road, they had overtaken a troop of refugees who, utterly exhausted, could travel no further. The peasants had a panic of alarm at sight of the column, thinking that the Germans were already upon them. It was hard work reassuring them, and it ended in a comedy, the soldiers taking a hand at the migration. Old women were mounted in the hand-carts they had been trying to pull, and were given a ride into town. Soldiers unharnessed the donkeys and put the children on their backs. They pushed at the wagons, they helped along the greybeards, they carried babes in their arms. Georges, I think, must have begun to realise that he had grown up when he, a veteran now, marched into Suipe, carrying a big basket for a lad of fifteen, who looked up to his soldier-protector admiringly, and called him Monsieur. No Frenchman will ever forget that dreadful first week of September, 1914. Every day the Germans grew nearer Paris, every day their cowardly aeroplanes sailed over the capital and dropped their futile threats. What was the French army doing? We hoped they were merely luring the enemy toward the forts of Paris, where the big guns could smash them. But could the army hold the enemy back, even with that assistance? paris was all nervous apprehension then that astounding news the german army almost within striking distance was swerving to the southeast. what did it mean to georges cuckereau retreating before those hammering hammering guns that quick change in direction was quite as mysterious from sweeper his regiment without stopping to entrench now marching day and night instead of keeping on toward paris swung sharply to the east along the road to st menu then as suddenly they turned back again into chalons heavy cannonading was coming now from almost every direction except the south every man was tense with excitement battle was in the air surely something was going to happen must happen but further and further south they marched and along the roads now the automobiles were flying like mad, night and day, some with officers, some flying the Red Cross flag. Over their heads there were French aeroplanes, every day the sky was never quite free of them. Georges caught his first sight of a British soldier, a khaki-clad dispatch rider, on a motorcycle flying past, and another they passed hundreds of Paris autobuses at the division headquarters, a long, long line that filled the village street at Sompuy, and ambulances, and cycle companies, and farriers' wagons, the portable forges glowing red in the evening darkness. Georges recognised the Senegalese spies in red flowing robes, he saw the Turcos from Morocco, big children they were, grinning black faces with shiny white teeth a wagon flew past with men inside feeding out telephone wire hooking it with long poles into the ditch or over the bushes out of the way as they galloped on best of all he began to get fresh meat for dinner from the portable kitchens that hurried from company to company along the road but always never stopping night and day more exciting than all the rest never forgotten no matter what happened in the north Growing ever nearer, the steady rumbling thunder of the German guns. End of section five.